I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. In the middle of March Madness, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments this week in NCAA versus Alston. The case is an antitrust challenge to the NCAA's rules about compensation for student athletes. It's brought by college basketball and football players. Today, we'll explore the constitutional and legal dimensions of the case with two of America's leading experts on antitrust and the Constitution. Thomas Nakbar is professor of law at the University of Virginia School of Law. He filed a brief in support of the NCAA, which has argued that maintaining the amateur status of college athletes fosters consumer choice between amateur and professional sports. Tom, it is wonderful to have you with us. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much, and thanks for having me here. And Sandeep Vahisan is legal director at the Open Markets Institute. He co-authored a brief on behalf of respondent Sean Alston, a former West Virginia University running back who argues that college athletes are being exploited. Sandeep, thank you so much for joining. Thanks so much, Jeff. Delighted to be here. Tom, why is this case important and what are the constitutional stakes? So this case is a follow-on to an earlier case. In a sense, it's a follow-on to two earlier cases. Um, there was an earlier case of, a few years ago called O'Bannon, uh, which addressed student compensation for the use of names, images, and likenesses uh, for NCAA student-athletes, uh, as opposed to compensation for playing their sports. Uh, in that case, the lower court had ruled that the NCAA could not limit compensation below the full cost of attendance, uh, but it did not have to pay cash compensation to students because that would defeat the NCAA's concept of amateurism. In Alston, this case, a different set of student athletes have attacked the NCAA's compensation scheme more generally, arguing that NCAA caps on compensation are an antitrust violation. The district court distinguished between non-cash educational benefits like computers or even post-eligibility scholarships to other schools and cash payments, and it struck the NCAA limits on non-cash educational benefits entirely, but it actually allowed individual conferences to cap those benefits. Uh, conferences like the uh, Atlantic Coast Conference or the Big Ten. With regard to uh, cash payments, it turns out that the NCAA had actually been allowing both cash academic and graduation awards and cash athletic participation awards for things like participating in conference championships. And so the district court ruled that the NCAA could not prohibit cash awards up to the amount they previously allowed. Um, I think this case is important in a couple of different ways. There are really two different ways you could look at it, at least. Uh, I think what most people will pay the most attention to is about the NCAA itself, which is really an exceptional organization in a variety of ways. It is provides a unique mixture of producing what is essentially an entertainment product, uh, athletics, right, uh, and education. And uh, as it came out today, it has a lot of market power, or as was repeatedly stated, monopsony power in the market for college athletes. In the end, uh, a lot of people uh, today, uh, several of the justices, and I think all three of the attorneys who argued the case talked to the, uh, about the possibility of legislation that might actually address this problem. And, and we can certainly talk about that uh, as we go. Um, and then the second way I would look at this case is that it has what I think is the potential to make some pretty significant antitrust law on both sides. Uh, if the NCAA wins, there is this idea that a joint venture with a lot of market power might be free to define its own product, even if that means even if that product means that it pays its players nothing. That was a big part of the NCAA's argument, and it certainly is a possibility if the NCAA wins, depending on how broad the holding is. If the plaintiffs win, it sets the potential that district courts all over the country will now be open to cases challenging not just the NCAA's restraints, but pretty much any agreed to industry practice uh, to make sure that it is the uh, least restrictive one that is available to serve a particular uh, justification. Uh, my, my brief in this case was really about 
the test that the Ninth Circuit applied and a specific part of the test, that is that less restrictive alternatives portion of it. Uh, the Ninth Circuit approach asks whether the NTAA could achieve its competitive goals with some less restrictive alternative. And the problem, of course, is that there's always a less restrictive alternative. On the margin, every alternative, you can find some less restrictive one. And so there's not a great uh, deal of guidance about how to apply a test like this. And it would also represent a major shift in how the Supreme Court has traditionally applied the rule of reason. Uh, it has not previously applied anything like a less restrictive alternatives test. And so if the court were to apply one in this case, I think it'd be a pretty substantial shift. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Sadiq, how would you introduce We the People listeners to what this case is about and what the constitutional stakes are? And, and picking up on some of the things that Tom said, explain to us wh where this rule of reason comes from in antitrust law, how it was not applied in this case, and what you think the proper test should be. Thanks, Jeff. So this case involves a challenge to maybe the most open and notorious employer cartel in the United States. So collegiate basketball and football is a very large commercial enterprise. Uh, Division one sports in the United States generate more annual revenue than the NBA. So this is sports. These are sports on par with professional sports. But the players who fans go to see in person and watch on TV get a relatively small fraction of these annual revenues. And the reason is for decades, the NCAA has established rules restricting the compensation for players. So at present, colleges cannot pay uh, players more than a scholarship equaling the cost of attendance. They cannot pay players salaries and wages and compensate them in a way that NBA or NFL teams compensate their players. And so that means that the players get a relatively small fraction of the wealth that's generated by the NCAA every year. So in professional sports, about one and two dollars goes to the players. In college basketball and football, in contrast, only about one and five dollars goes to the players. So where does that 80 percent go? Uh, a significant ch chunk of it goes to coaches and administrators. So, for instance, uh, Kentucky's head basketball coach John Calipari and Alabama's head football coach Nick Saban make nearly $10 million a year. And athletic directors commonly make six or seven figures as well. And in 39 states, the highest paid public employee is either a college basketball coach or a college football coach. So how does the NCAA justify this open collusion against players? It says that we have to do this to preserve amateurism. Uh, there's something distinctive about our sports vis-a-vis -vis professional sports. But amateurism doesn't really have a stable or even settled definition. And NCAA president Mark Emmert has admitted as much and said that it constantly evolves and changes. And so it often seems like amateurism is simply a benign way of describing employer collusion. The NCAA wouldn't be able to simply say, we don't want to play the, pay the players because we'd rather channel the spoils to John Calipari and Nick Saban. Instead, amateurism has, this, has positive connotations. People think of it as something noble and worthwhile. And that's something uh, some of the justices uh, mentioned at oral argument today. They noted that amateurism simply seems like a cover for collusive exploitation. So that's really what the players are challenging here. And this case is also interesting for antitrust reasons. So the players at trial and on appeal won a limited victory. And the courts applied something called the rule of reason. The, the courts said that the players have established that these collusive restraints harm them. Their, their compensation is less than it would be if colleges freely competed for their talents and services. But the courts allowed the NCAA to introduce justifications, including justifications pertaining to college sports fans, so consumers in a separate market. And it credited one of the justifications offered by the NCAA. It said that, the courts said that, uh, college sports fans, at least some fraction of college sports fans, watch basketball and football played by Duke, UNC, Kentucky, and others because the players are not paid like professionals. They value the fact that the players are um, exploited. They're, they're not paid a fair competitive salary. 
And so the court said, we're not going to strike down the entire NCAA system of restraints. We're going to simply strike down the restraints pertaining to compensation tied to education. So for instance, uh, payments for books, payments for scholarships for future graduate study. So the lower courts kept the bulk of the NCAA system intact and struck down one piece of it, namely the piece concerning education-related payments. So I think this articulation and application of the rule of reason could be very harmful, not just for the players, but for all workers and producers in our society going forward. So for instance, under the so-called cross-market balancing, Uber could impose a restraint of trade on its drivers and then defend itself by saying, sure, these restraints hurt the drivers, but here are some benefits to passengers and other groups. So this cross-marketing balance balancing really opens up the possibility for broad judicial cost-benefit analysis under which the courts are saying, yes, we recognize harm to one group, but we're going to offset that by recognizing benefits to another group. And in this case, the benefits were fairly theoretical. The, the courts uh, rejected the survey evidence that the NCAA used to support this argument, but nonetheless said, yeah, we think there is something special about college sports because the players are not fairly paid. And so we're going to recognize that justification and accordingly fashion a very tailored remedy. And, you know, the NCAA also has important uh, racial justice implications. And that's something I can talk a little bit more about over the course of our conversation. Many thanks for for that. Uh, Tom, um, justices across the court uh, seemed skeptical about the NCAA's argument that it can it could ban these modest payments to student athletes in the name of amateurism. Uh, Justice Thomas noted, uh, as Sandeep did, that it, he said it just strikes me as odd that coaches' salaries have ballooned. Justice Kavanaugh said the antitrust law shouldn't be a cover for the exploitation of student athletes. But the justices, although they seem to concede that these uh, education-related payments uh, should be allowed because um, the cap. Uh, of about $5,000 was incredibly low. There was no consensus about what the alternative would be, and there was a concern that there'd be a lot of other challenges that might destroy uh, the game as an amateur sports game. So tell us, as you read the oral argument, um, what the justices seemed to be converging around as they expressed skepticism about the uh, caps, but were unsure about the alternatives. Well, this goes a little bit to the other follow-on case uh, that I mentioned. So in 1984, there was an, there was an earlier antitrust challenge to uh, the NCAA with regard to restrictions on television broadcasting. And the NCAA lost that case. Um, but from uh, the jaws of defeat, they snatched uh, a what they've been using as their justification for restraints over time, which is the amateurism justification that the court mentioned in that case. And I think the, the members of the court have a, had a hard time with really either extreme uh, in the case. So if you take the NCAA's position to its extreme, they could really impose any restraint they wanted to as long as they could argue that it is justified in defining their product. Uh, and I think that the justices were quite concerned about such a broad uh, justification in large part, I think, because of the market power that the NCAA has. And that really, that came up repeatedly, that uh, several of the justices were concerned about how much market power the NCAA has. It wasn't really an issue in the case uh, uh, below because it's conceded. You know, when you think about college sports, there really is one choice, and that's the NCAA. There are actually other uh, collegiate athletic associations that are out there, but the NCAA dominates. And I think that degree of market power clearly weighed on the justices' minds. Uh, and, um, and market power is an aspect of the rule of reason. The rule of reason ostensibly seeks to balance the anti-competitive effects of a restraint with its pro-competitive justifications. And this test and this formulation of the test has been around for a long, long time, uh, really since the Chicago Board of Trade case. Um, and a number of people, I think, have raised over time concerns about the ability to balance pro-competitive effects with anti-competitive uh, effects 
sometimes they're incommensurable. Uh, and there's a, a, a substantial amount of scholarship written about the difficulty in doing so. Certainly market power features into that. So the court previously articulated uh, a form of the rule of reason that says, take a look at the uh, anti-competitive effects, try to balance them against the pro-competitive justifications and ask if there's enough market power to make a difference. And in this case, there's a lot of market power. And I think that that aspect of it weighed heavily on the justices' minds when they were looking at it today. Uh, alternatively, I think they were concerned about the use of antitrust to solve this particular problem, in part because it's a, it's a complex product. And uh, again, because the Ninth Circuit test would essentially allow, um, and a few of the justices mentioned this as well, the ability uh, of athletes to come back and say, well, we did another survey, right? So uh, as Sandeep points out, right, the concept of amateurism, especially if you go by consumer perception is a fluid one. In uh, a few years, perhaps the plaintiffs are able to come back with a survey that shows, oh, well, now instead of being able to pay um, $6,000, uh, it's okay to pay 10000 And in fact, there was substantial disagreement among the expert witnesses in this case. And so I think the justices were really concerned about that possibility that if you do tie this conception of amateurism really explicitly to uh, consumer perception using this particular test, that you could have repeated relitigation of this issue and turn the district court essentially into a form of price regulator, which the court is, is pretty hesitant to do. So I think that uh, there's a lot of tension there. And again, uh, a lot of folks mentioned uh, and pointed to the possibility of getting legislation. There's been legislation uh, adopted and proposed in states, and there's talk about it happening uh, in Congress as well. Uh, Sandeep, um, Tom mentioned the Chicago Board of Trade case. That was as early as 1918 and, and uh, it, it, as early as the progressive era, the standard oil case, 1911, we, we, we begin to have this rule of reason in antitrust cases, which seems to give courts tremendous discretion in balancing costs and benefits. Um, when it comes to the to, to college sports, what are the constraints on that balance, which you expressed concern about? And what formulation of that balancing test did you see the court seeming to converge around, if any? Yeah, so the rule of reason has been with us for a long time, famously articulated by Justice Brandeis and Chicago Board of Trade. But what's really peculiar about Alston, as well as the O'Bannon case, is they involved conduct that would typically be per se illegal or presumptively illegal. Courts wouldn't have to engage in this, this type of balancing. They wouldn't even get to the question of what are the benefits that we can consider against the harms. But this is really one of the consequences of Board of Regents. So Tom mentioned that in Board of Regents, the NCAA really uh, snatched a victory out of the jaws of defeat. So that was a case where the NCAA lost. The court struck down restrictions concerning TV broadcasts by elite football programs, but had a throwaway line about the social benefits of amateurism. And so the NCAA since then has said, sure, we lost, but using this dicta, uh, the court actually granted us this broad antitrust immunity that protects our rules around player compensation from antitrust scrutiny. So they were successful with that argument for a number of years, but starting with O'Bannon and now with Alston, the lower courts have said, no, that is dicta. Your rules on compensation are subject to antitrust scrutiny. But Board of Regents also said a second point that I think has been widely accepted. The court said, you know, sports, including college sports, require some level of collaboration, cooperation. Therefore, all rules and restraints adopted by the relevant leagues and conferences should be subject to the rule of reason. And so since then, even conduct that would otherwise be per se illegal has been subject to the rule of reason. Um, so I would argue that, you know, in this case, the plaintiffs should have pled a per se case because, uh, you know, I think Board of Regents has been read too broadly. It didn't necessarily immunize all forms of uh, restraints. And, you know, collusion has been called the supreme evil of antitrust by the Supreme Court. And so I think they should have argued here for a per se or presumptive illegality standard. But since they didn't, we're in rule of reason world. And yeah, the lower court's formulation of the rule of reason is, is very troubling in that it invites judicial cost-benefit analysis and allows judges to weigh harms to one group against benefits to another group and 
compare fundamentally unlike quantities and qualities. So I worry that if the standard is adopted and applied to all rule of reason cases, it puts judges in the position of super legislators where they're deciding questions that should be reserved for Congress and state legislatures. Tom, Justice Alito expressed a similar question. He said, is this a per se violation of the antitrust laws? And if so, should the restrictions here get what he called a quick look? And a bunch of justices asked whether the quick look standard should apply. Tell us what that is. It, it sounds like that means you don't uh, do an elaborate balancing test, but just quickly see whether there's anti-competitive behavior. Um, and then um, address, if you will, Justice Alito's other question, which other justices shared about the exploitation of student athletes. He said, I'm concerned about the exploitation of students because coaches get a lot of money. How can this be defended in the name of amateurism? And where might Justice Alito and the court go with that concern? Um, so the quick look, uh, as you said, right, the quick look is uh, an abbreviated form uh, of antitrust review. So um, the in sort of a theoretical sense, on the one end, there's the per se rule where you look at a restraint and you just you can know right away it's illegal. So price fixing is uh, is illegal. Two competitors get together and they fix prices. It's a per se violation. In Chicago Board of Trade itself, actually, uh, uh, the competitors literally did fix prices. They kept the price of grain, a particular kind of uh, grain, from fluctuating over time. And the court said, oh, well, that's not what we meant by price fixing. So really right from the beginning, there's been some indeterminacy about the way that the per se rules apply. Um, and then on the other end, there's sort of wide open rule of reason balancing, which is what uh, is commonly attributed to uh, Justice Brandeis and Board of Trade. Uh, and then somewhere in the middle, uh, really, to some extent had its genesis in the original NCAA case is this idea of the quick look, where you can look at a restraint and someone with even a rudimentary understanding about uh, economics uh, could understand that that even though it doesn't fit in the category of per se illegal cases, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be illegal. Um, the case after that, the court actually limited, I think, the application of the rule of reason and sort of shifted to more of a sliding scale of rule of reason scrutiny and, and avoided categories like per se, quick look and full rule of reason. And just like, as I said, describe this sliding scale. Um, but the idea of the quick look is definitely out there. Um, the NCAA in this case has argued the quick look in a little bit different way. They've argued that the quick look can be applied to uphold a restraint. And uh, um, I think that that view got considerable questioning today. I think there were some of the back and forth uh, uh, among the justices and between the justices and the lawyers was about that use of the term quick look and, and resulted in it being used maybe a little bit more than it would have otherwise been. Um, but, but generally, the quick look is this idea that you can look at a restraint quickly and make a decision about it. And previously, it's largely been used to invalidate restraints. Um, with regard to exploitation, I definitely, I also heard the justices talking about that, and it's a little hard to figure out how they think that works here. So, you know, because it's such a complex market, I think there's a lot of concern about, it's, again, this goes back to the bargaining PowerPoint. There's a lot of concern about the market power that the NCAA has uh, in this, um, in this market. And the NCAA's some of the NCAA's arguments are that many of the rules that they've adopted are to avoid the exploitation of players. So, um, and they made that argument today that the NCAA itself was born uh, of an attempt to roll back abuses and um, uh, exploitation of players. And then of course, uh, over time, there've been concerns about whether or not this is the right level of compensation for players. I think one of the you know, as I heard those questions today, uh, it, it did make me think about, well, how would you set the appropriate level of compensation and whether or not the court is interested in doing that in an antitrust context? Usually antitrust courts don't do that kind of thing. That's not a, that's not a sort of a typical um, uh, antitrust remedy. And, um, and it would be, I think it would be something of an extension for the court to want to do that in an antitrust case. It's not inconceivable, though, uh, but that usually is the kind of thing that happens with regulation. And so 
Commonly, what will happen in markets that don't work, in which a party has a substantial amount of market power, like a natural monopoly, like a utility, they will go and get regulation and they'll have their rates regulated by some kind of public entity like a legislature or there'll be a public utility commission. Um, and that's a more, much more typical approach than using the antitrust laws to set levels of compensation to, uh, to avoid some kind of bargaining power problem. Uh, Sandeep, you argue that the rule of reason in this case had a clear disparate impact. Injuries to largely black workforces were tolerated in large part in the name of catering to the preferences of white sports fans. Tell us more about that uh, argument about exploitation of uh, black players, which many of the justices seem to share. And how do you think it should be avoided? What, what rules should be applied and what should the result be? Sure. So the NCAA system is racialized in a in at least two ways. So as I mentioned earlier, the, the lower courts credited this idea that college sports fans value amateur players, players who aren't paid by professionals. And research has found that there are significant racial divisions about how whites and blacks view the prospect of paying college athletes like professionals. So a majority of black Americans believe that college athletes should be paid whereas only about 20% of whites believe that college athletes sh should be paid. And the study further found that opposition to paying college athletes among whites is positively correlated with the degree of anti-black animus that they expressed. So there is a clear racial component to the uh, public's preference for maintaining the system of amateurism. Whites generally pr prefer the status quo. The most racist whites are committed most strongly to the status quo, whereas blacks favor a system where colleges compete for players by paying them wages and salaries. So the court said, you know, we're willing to sacrifice the interests of black athletes to cater to uh, a racist public. Um, so I think it's racialized from that perspective. And I think at a more fundamental level, if you see about, look at how the spoils are divided among players, coaches, and administrators, you're seeing a mostly white group of coaches and administrators making a lot of money, sometimes millions of dollars a year, and on the other hand, profiting off the labor of mostly black athletes. So in college basketball last, men's college basketball last year, roughly 55% of the players are black. In college football and women's basketball, it was about half the players, about half the players were black. So there is a racial injustice element to it, and it's and it's abundantly clear. And I think what the players want is they want the courts to strike down these restraints. They want the same fair competitive market that the coaches enjoy. Uh, so to respond to Tom a little bit, the, the players aren't saying, you know, Supreme Court, please pay Jared Butler $200,000 a year. What they're saying is give us the same open competitive market that Roy Williams and Mike Krzyzewski enjoy. And they want the courts to strike down the restraints, not to engage in price regulation or price setting. They just want the same free open market that the coaches and administrators enjoy. So I think the idea that the players are asking for public utility regulation is a straw man. Thank you for that. Uh, Tom, might any of the justices, uh, several of whom were concerned about exploitation, be moved to uh, uh, eliminate all of the constraints, as Sandeep suggests? And why do you think that's a bad idea? And, and, and what test are you proposing that the court should apply instead? Um, so I didn't mean to suggest that the players were uh, asking for some kind of public utility regulation. What I was trying to suggest was that um, the, so the district court in this case set a cap, basically. Um, it set a dollar amount. And so the point that I was trying to make was that typically, um, over over time, antitrust courts try to get out of the business of doing that. In that, when you have a business like the when you have an industry like the NCAA, um, where there's a lot of market power, to the extent that you get that kind of price specific regulation, you get it from public utility regulation. I, I wasn't trying to suggest that that's what the players were looking for at all. Um, with regard to the specific test, the way the court has looked at this before is whether or not the restraint is reasonably necessary in order to serve the pro-competitive justification. I actually think that that's the right approach to this case. 
And it's entirely possible that the district court could decide that these restraints don't actually serve the pro-competitive justification. They did that in a couple of cases. And, and I actually don't think that that's a problem in terms of the antitrust law, nor do I have a view on the facts as to whether or not the restraints actually serve these pro-competitive justifications. My concern really is about the rule that the district court came up with, which was not to make a general um, determination about whether the restraints serve the pro-competitive justifications, but to ask whether that justification could be served by some less restrictive restraint. And that's what I think uh, the problem is with the district court. And that actually, I think, is the problem that the justices keyed upon uh, this during the oral argument, which is this concern that if you take this less restrictive alternative approach, that you're inviting uh, relitigation of the question every time someone comes up with some less restrictive alternative, as opposed to making a categorical determination. I actually think that the less restrictive alternatives test in one sense was too um, uh, deferential to the schools and the conferences, which is that the district court concluded that the limit on, edu on non-cash educational uh, benefits was not related to the amateurism justification, but then allowed the conferences to impose limits on non-cash educational benefits because it was less restrictive than uh, uh, having the NCAA do so. But if it's not related to the justification at all, then there's no reason to allow the conferences to do it either. But I think the court was, it invited itself basically to make that mistake by trying to focus on something that would be less restrictive instead of focusing on whether or not the pro-competitive justification was actually served by the restraint. So just to recap where we were, the, the lower court found that the NCAA's restraints uh, were justified by the pro-competitive result of preserving amateur sports, and they allowed the NCAA to cap non-athletic graduation and academic awards at basically around $6,000. Tom said he didn't have a problem with lifting that cap, but he was concerned about the test the lower court applied, which looked for less restrictive alternatives. Are, are you arguing for a um, elimination of all caps on uh, student compensation? And if so, how would you respond to Justice Sotomayor's question that this might uh, destroy uh, amateur college sports? Yeah, so that's that's my position. I think the court should strike down all the restraints on player compensation and create a fair competitive market for their services for the first time, well, at least the first time in a very long time. And so that would address the problem of courts functioning as quasi-regulators and periodically re revisiting where to draw the line. Is $7,000 too much? Should we raise it to $10,000 based on changes in customer perception? I think it would be administratively much simpler than the remedy that the district court imposed. And it would address some of the administrative concerns that Tom raised, which I happen to share. On the question of whether this would destroy college sports, you know, the, the NCAA has been predicting a parade of horribles for decades. So the system has been reformed over the years in large measure through litigation. And before every change, the NCAA said, you know, this would lead to a loss of viewer interest. This would fundamentally disrupt the system. We wouldn't have college sports. And lo and behold, college sports have thrived. Uh, college sports are more popular and more lucrative than ever before. So I think we should look at that history when and the NCAA and others say that, you know, ruling in favor of the players and granting them a full victory would and college sports as we know it. And, you know, to the extent that the NCAA wants special treatment, wants a special dispensation, it should go to Congress. Congress can carve out certain aspects of NCAA collaboration and say that, you know, this is protected from antitrust or we will allow the NCAA to engage in revenue sharing, establish salary caps. So even if the NCAA is handed a complete defeat here, it's not out of options. It can take concrete steps toward preserving you know, system, uh, beneficial aspects of its system. Tom, your brief argues that although this case presents hard questions of the NCAA's unique position and the specific restrictions, the court hasn't doesn't have to reach those questions because the lower court just applied the wrong standard. And you say the court should reverse and tell the lower courts to apply 
the rule of reason, which is the right standard, as previously described in the court's antitrust jurisprudence. Did you hear support for that position during the oral argument, uh, which might allow the court to duck the hard questions of the future of uh, college sports? And um, uh, do you think that they might take that route? So I do think that the repeated questions that the court had about future litigants revisiting the question and coming back every time they identify a slightly less restrictive alternative, I think that those questions really go to exactly that point in that that would be one avenue for the court to avoid trying to figure out as an original matter what the NCAA is and really what the NCAA is today and tomorrow in in 10 years. Because I think Sandeep makes a you know great point, which is that it's changed over time. Uh, to some extent, this case um, is the result of the lifting of the television restrictions in the earlier Board of Regents case. So uh, in the earlier, you know, when the um, in 1983, the NCAA uh, televised 89 games in 2019. I'm sorry, just football in 2019. They televised 392 games. Um, now, part of that are uh, lifts on the or the elimination of the limits on uh, broadcasting. And part of that is just the change in the nature of broadcasting. There are just many other outlets these days as a matter of technology and markets. Uh, It's a very different market than it was in 1983 for a variety of reasons. And to some extent, a lot of the disparities and a lot of the money that are resulting uh, are the product of that growth. So thinking that the NCAA is going to be the same thing 20 years from now that it is today, doesn't that doesn't seem likely to me. I think it's going to evolve over time, regardless of what happens in this case. Uh, and so one way to uh, try to avoid uh, entrenching a view of what the NCAA is in the U.S. reports is for the court to adopt a narrower approach and um, uh, reverse the case for the application of the rule of reason uh, and to see what happens under the rule of reason more generally. I do think that as a practical matter, Uh, the likelihood of legislation goes up pretty quickly over time. And so it's entirely possible. And uh, uh, I tend to agree with Sandeep. I don't think it would be inappropriate at all for Congress to step in here and do something given the both the, uh, I think, unique nature of what the NCAA is doing in combining uh, education with athletics in the way that it does and really a host of other products, right? Universities, uh, uh, provide a host of other products all in combination, uh, and the tremendous uh, market concentration through the NCAA that it has. I mean, in many ways, the NCAA acts like a, a private, almost quasi-governmental agency uh, among the schools. And so um, in that sense, it's it's not a legislature, but it really does. They adopt rules that govern the way the schools operate and the way the schools uh, deal with their athletes that go far beyond things like compensation. And of course, uh, these are uh, these are young people who are entering school. Uh, they're not likely to be as sophisticated about uh, the transactions that they're entering into. And you see a lot of regulation in this space, uh, things like um, regulation with regard to Uh, financial transparency for schools in order to make it easier for people to make decisions about uh, where to go to school. And I think it's possible, if not likely, that we'll see some kind of regulation in this space, regardless of the way this case comes out. Thank you for that. Uh, Sandeep, you argue that courts shouldn't sacrifice competition in one market in the name of promoting competition in another. And these questions of social policy should be reserved for Congress and the state legislatures. What's your reaction to the to this narrower possibility that the Supreme Court might reverse, send it back to the lower courts to apply the rule of reason, and then Congress would have the opportunity to legislate? Uh, is it, is legislation a realistic possibility, and what might legislation look like? Yeah, so this really is the big question in the case. What is the rule of reason? How should courts apply it? And, you know, unless the court here grants some clear guidance uh, to the lower courts. I worry that the Ninth Circuit and the District Court will apply some version of the rule of reason they already applied that is open-ended, broad, allows them to sacrifice competition in one market, the labor market for player services, in the name of promoting competition in another, that's the competition for um, sports fans. And 
I think the Supreme Court would do the public a great service if it offered some guidance and set some clear parameters on what falls within a rule of reason analysis and what doesn't belong in a rule of reason analysis. And it's worth remembering that for more than a century, the court has pretty consistently held that workers and other sellers are equally entitled to antitrust protection as consumers and other purchasers are. So the lower court's formulation of the rule of reason here really flies in the face of that well-established principle. So that gets to the question of, you know, what might reform look like in this area? And I think professional sports offer a model. You know, the leagues have, I believe all the leagues, or at least three out of the four leagues have some form of salary cap and revenue sharing. And I think a system like that would be equitable and fair and probably more equitable and fair than the current system of college sports where players are both not fairly paid and you know the the schools at the top the the dukes the kentuckys the kansases engage in all sorts of competition that smaller schools can't meet so for example a uh, smaller school cannot afford to pay a weight coach $500,000 a year whereas duke and um, Kansas can afford to do things like that. So some type of revenue sharing would actually soften the inequities we see in the system right now. And, you know, one interesting possibility here that isn't often talked about is, you know, the NCAA could do a lot of these things by allowing the players to unionize and putting these provisions into collective bargaining agreements. So in the late 1970s, the D.C. Circuit actually struck down the NFL's draft and said this is a former, this is an illegal restraint of trade. And what subsequently happened is the draft was incorporated into the collective bargaining agreement between the NFL and the NFLPA. So in theory, that's another option here for the NCAA in the event it loses. It can simply say, okay, we're not going to get legislation, but we can actually get many of the things we want by recognizing the unionization efforts of players and putting these terms into collective bargaining agreements. Tom, let us talk now about the potential of this case to change antitrust law more generally. Uh, you say that the Ninth Circuit test, the less restrictive alternatives test, has the potential to invite courts to make very fine-grained inquiries into the validity of business practices. Tell us more about that concern, how it could affect other areas of antitrust law and whether or not you think the Supreme Court will try to avoid that by fashioning a test that doesn't change other areas of antitrust law. So uh, I think that the case, the litigation below really demonstrates just how much additional detail can be required uh, if one applies a test like this. So the uh, district court took a tremendous amount of evidence both on what consumer perception, uh, how consumer perception would be affected by starting to pay players, but down to the level of trying to figure out how much extra you could pay them. Uh, and so uh, there were uh, different surveys were presented. Some suggested that you could pay them as much as $10,000 a year, and it wouldn't really alter consumer perception of amateurism very much. And I, I, and as a result, you get not only an inquiry into whether or not the restraint serves the interest, uh, you get an inquiry into just how much the restraint serves the interest. Now, that's an interesting problem when it comes to things like dollars. So another thing that the NCAA does, for instance, is it limits the number of hours that student athletes can spend practicing. Well, that's a really substantial limitation on the ability of a student athlete to develop, right? Maybe they wanna spend more time uh, with the team. Um, but that kind of restriction, uh, again, you could measure in the number of hours. And you could see a similar consumer survey saying, oh, well, um, you know, if, if teams are allowed to practice more or less, I mean, especially as you try to change the meaning of amateurism uh, by uh, compensating players a little bit over time. But I think the more general concern for antitrust actually goes way beyond things like the NCAA. So, for instance, there's a lot of talk in antitrust these days about the role of platforms like Facebook or um uh, Google operates a platform and uh, Amazon's a platform. And one of the interesting things about a lot of these platforms is that they're online. And when you take a platform or you take any product and you uh, instantiate it in computer code, there really is no natural limitation to the definition of that product. If you wanted to change Facebook a little bit, you change code and you change it a little bit. 
And so if you really do take this less restrictive alternatives test seriously, and you take products like online platforms, which really have no natural or physical definition, you open up the possibility that you could make, again, really fine grain changes in those products, both because they're amenable to those kinds of fine grain changes because they don't have a natural definition, but also because firms in this platform space also tend to have an awful lot of market power. So I think that that's probably the most, that's one of the major concerns that I have about this rule is not even how it applies in this space. Although I think when you start, once you start talking about dollars, it gets very fine grained. But when you take it and you try to apply it in other industries, ones that are dynamic and ones that uh, don't have a physical product, but have sort of a notional product, then there really aren't a lot of boundaries on the limitations that antitrust might impose. Uh, Sandeep, I'd like to ask you too about the effects of this ruling on other cases. You too express concern that uh, competitive tools that other employers use against workers might be judged under this sort of hard look, uh, least restrictive rule of reason that the Ninth Circuit uh, corrupted, as you say, and you, you gave the Uber example, you say in your brief, Uber uses a combination of low base pay and bonuses to drivers whom it classifies as independent contractors to encourage them to use only the Uber app to obtain passengers. Uh, does Alston or mean that Uber can point to consumer benefits in defending itself against a potential driver lawsuit over exclusivity? Tell us more about that concern and how you think the court should avoid it. Yeah, so I think in this case, the the rule of reason should have been cabined. So once the players showed that the NCAA's restraints inflicted an injury on them, the possible justifications should have been related only to the players themselves, where they're offsetting benefits from this restraint. So the NCAA pointed to better integration of athletics and education. The court rejected the justifications pertaining to the players, and that should have been the end of the inquiry. The court shouldn't have looked at benefits to consumers and other groups. And I think it, it raises the possibility that courts become super legislators, super regulators. You know, they shouldn't have reached the least restrictive uh, analysis stage that Tom mentioned. This case should have been decided much earlier in favor of the players. And so now we have a system where if this rule of reason uh, formulation is adopted generally, you know, other powerful employers can say, yeah, a restraint injured, injured the relevant workers, it led to depressed wages, but we also want you to look at the enhanced consumer convenience, maybe lower prices to consumers. And I think that undercuts the Sherman Act's longstanding protection of workers and other producers, and then really asks the courts to function as super regulators. The courts are not well positioned to make these types of uh, broad social judgments. They don't have relevant in industrial expertise. They certainly don't have popular accountability. So to the extent that we want someone making these types of determinations, it should be popularly accountable actors like Congress and state legislatures. Well, it's time for closing arguments in this fascinating and rich discussion. And Tom, the first one is to you. Uh, why is the Austin case important? Why should we, the people listeners, care about it? And how should the Supreme Court decide it? So I think the Austin case is really important because both this industry, I think, is it's an enormous industry. Uh, and because the Supreme Court has some background in dealing with it, it's got a baseline to act off of. And what the court is going to do in this case, regardless of what it does, is it's going to wind up either affirming that background that it has, um, uh, the uh, language out of uh, Board of Regents, or it's going to have to repudiate that background at some level if it winds up having to rule on the NCAA's um, uh, amateurism arguments. Uh, I think that a much better way to go about doing it is to uh, recognize the difficulty for antitrust that's presented by the Ninth Circuit's approach and to uh, decide the case based on the Ninth Circuit's uh, application of what I think is the wrong rule in this case, and really a rule that doesn't have any precedent in the Supreme Court as well. And in so doing, I think the Supreme Court can actually open up some space for the kind of legislative solution uh, that Sandeep is talking about, but that if it goes down the road of either uh, ratifying the NCAA system writ large or uh, striking it down entirely, 
the consequences, I think, are largely unforeseeable, uh, but they are going to be pretty fixed because changing the antitrust law in the face of a Supreme Court interpretation on the rule of reason is a, is a hard thing to do. It happens very gradually uh, and it happens over time in part because there's so much discretion that's built into the rule of reason. So the court needs to be particularly careful about how it's being applied in, in different industries. Sandeep, the last word is to you. Why is the Austin case important? Why should we, the people listeners, care about it? And how should the Supreme Court decide it? So the Austin case involves a direct challenge to a racialized cartel. A group of mostly white colleges and administrators are profiting off the labor of mostly black athletes. This Conduct would ordinarily be per se illegal. Thanks to some peculiar history, it isn't. But notwithstanding decisions like Board of Regents, the court should strike down the NCAA's restraints in full because they harmed the players and the NCAA presented no offsetting justifications that benefited the players. But I think this case extends beyond the NCAA and has important implications for antitrust law and working people going forward. Uh, If the Supreme Court grants the players a full victory, that means that the Sherman Act could be a powerful tool to ensure that all workers in the United States, not only college basketball and football players, uh, but Uber drivers and countless other workers have the right to participate in fair competitive markets. Thank you so much, Tom Nakbar and Sandeep Vahisan, for a rich, illuminating, and uh, really um, educational discussion of the important antitrust issues involved in the Austin case. Tom, Sandeep, thank you so much for joining. Jeff, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Sandeep, I enjoyed the conversation. Likewise. Thanks so much, Tom. Thanks so much, Jeff. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Mac Taylor, Paige Britton, Lana Ulrich, and Jackie McDermott please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and continue to recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone who is hungry for thoughtful, civil, constitutional debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement, the devotion to lifelong learning of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by sending me an email and saying you like the show or uh, sending a donation of any amount, a dollar, five dollars, just to signal your support or becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.